my freshman year of college at the University of Nebraska, uh, I also joined a student fan club called Husker Fury, which is a pretty sweet name for a fan club, if you think about it. Uh, now, if you go to the University of Nebraska, it may sound odd that there is even such a thing as a fan club for the Huskers because that's pretty much the only thing they're known for, and it's kind of assumed everybody at the school is a fan. Uh, but I joined the club, and I attended a couple meetings. I got to hear a few coaches speak and things. But the real reason I joined that club was because of the various freebies and the cheaper tickets to games. So... You know, I like the Huskers, but really my involvement was all about what I got out of the deal. It had absolutely nothing to do with what I put into it. That, that was my approach. And that kind of fan club mentality is, is not that different from a lot of the ways that, that people approach Jesus in his own day and even in our day as well. Uh, as one author puts it, essentially it's like saying, I believe in Jesus. I'm a big fan. But don't ask me to follow him. You know, I don't mind coming to church on weekends. I'll pray before meals. I'll do a bit of recycling. I'll even slap a Jesus fish on, you know, my bumper. But I don't want Jesus to interfere with my life. See, this is all about what I get out of it, not about what I put into it. And Jesus had a lot of fans. Um, crowds were drawn to him. The conclusion of our passage last week, uh, we read in Matthew 8.16 that when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and he healed all the sick. Now the crowds were gathered around him. But then notice how our passage begins this week in verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Kind of interesting. He gets the crowd and, and he wants to get out of there. So the crowds loved him, but Jesus was not interested in gaining a following. A bunch of fanboys who are only interested in what they got out of the deal. Jesus wants followers. We're not talking about Twitter or, or being liked on Facebook or something like that. He's looking for people who are going to devote their entire lives, everything they have, everything they are, to lay it down for his sake and for the sake of the gospel, to make disciples of all nations. That is the call of Jesus and his kingdom. That's the call that we see throughout the gospel of Matthew, which we've been studying together. It's our vision and desire as a congregation here at Westgate to be a gospel-centered community living each day, every day, on mission for Christ. And what this passage tells us this morning, is that King Jesus is worthy of our highest allegiance and our absolute trust, whatever the danger or the cost. King Jesus is worthy of our highest allegiance and our absolute trust, whatever the danger or cost. But the way that our passage tells us that message is actually through three negative examples. So three examples of how not to follow Jesus, in other words. Three stories that come from overestimating the world and underestimating Christ. And again, if you're not still there, go ahead and turn Matthew 8, um, 18 through 27. And uh, that's page 962 if you're using the, the Bible in the rack in front of you. And let's pray together and ask God to make himself known to us uh, through this passage. 
Lord, that is our desire. We want to know you. And we want to know you, Lord, so that we can follow you. Uh, Lord, I confess right now that so often my default is to approach uh, the faith to approach you looking for what I can gain from it. And God, I praise you that there's nothing better than what you give. But Lord, may we all see this morning, may I see this morning, um, that it's about your worthiness and your mission. It's not about me. It's not about us. And so, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see you and hearts that are ready to be transformed. Give us ears to hear your voice in your scriptures this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, given the, the, um, the emphasis that Matthew has placed on Jesus' authority throughout this book so far, his authority in teaching at the Sermon on the Mount that we saw recently, last week we saw his authority in driving out um, sickness and disease, it, it, it's not surprising that he would gain a following for that kind of activity. Uh, that people would gather around, and that some of those people would would want to follow Jesus uh, some more. And again, in our passage, we have three examples of those who want to follow Jesus, but but each of those is, in a a lot of ways, a negative example. Um, The first two being would-be followers, and the third example coming, somewhat ironically, from Jesus' inner circle. So we find the first example in verses 19 through 20. Then the teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, if if an army recruiter, if, if you were an army recruiter and a young person comes up to you and says, I want to join the army, I will follow my commander wherever he goes. Or if you're an athletic recruiter and, and you get an all-state uh, you know, high school football player who says, sign me up, I want to play for this coach wherever he goes, you would go to bed that night thinking, this has been a good day. That's exactly the kind of response you're looking for as you're recruiting people to follow. And so you would think when Jesus hears the words of this scribe or this teacher of the law, someone who's well-versed in the scriptures of Israel, uh, someone from a group that's actually rather antagonistic against Jesus, uh, who now boldly declares that he's going to follow Jesus wherever he goes, you would think that that's exactly the kind of response Jesus has been looking for, wouldn't you? Uh, in fact, I would imagine if we were standing there watching the conversation, we would probably be pretty excited. It's kind of like getting a celebrity convert or something like that. And imagine what, what God can do with this guy on his team. And yet Jesus doesn't react that way. In fact, you might say he shoots the scribe's promise down in a blaze of glory or shame. Why is that? Why does he respond that way? Well, Jesus is able to see what we often can't see. Jesus can see the heart. And he sees something in this scribe's heart that tells him he's not really interested in following Jesus. What we have here is a mere fan whom Jesus essentially tells to go home. Now that seems kind of harsh. So so what does he see? What is it that Jesus sees? Well, based on the way he responds to the scribe, it appears that this would-be disciple has made big promises without really counting the cost. You know, there's something, obviously, that draws him to Jesus. 
Uh, maybe he, like so many at the end of chapter 7, is amazed by the authority with which Jesus teaches. And, and, and you know, perhaps he wants to learn more to be an even better teacher of the law. Maybe he thinks that Jesus could use him on his team. You know, with all of his Bible knowledge, all of his connections to the scribes and such, I mean, Jesus would be lucky to have a guy like him around. Um, it's interesting when you compare the way that the scribe addresses Jesus with the way that the leper and the centurion address Jesus in last week's passage. This man talks about what he will do, whereas they talked about what Jesus could do. So, whatever it is that draws him, Jesus indicates in his response that this man has spoken too quickly. He's failed to adequately weigh the cost of becoming one of Jesus' followers. So Jesus says in verse 20, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Following Jesus is not like in, enrolling in an academic class for a semester. You know, it's, it's a life of sacrifice and self-denial. It means hardship. It means saying no to a lot of the comforts that we take for granted in life. Uh, given Jesus' itinerant ministry of going from town to town and preaching the gospel and the kingdom, you know, it's not something you go home from at the end of the day to your own bed after, you know, an eight to five type of job. Uh, following Jesus costs everything. And it would seem that this would be follower overestimates, therefore, what the world can give him, the comfort, the security, perhaps even the fame and glory, and he underestimates the sacrifice that comes with truly following Christ. So that's the first example we see. The second one is in verses 21 through 22. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, that just seems kind of cold, doesn't it? I mean, it just seems a bit rude, maybe, I don't know. Catches you off guard. Uh, here's a guy who, again, obviously sees the importance of following Jesus and, and judging by the fact that Jesus still invites him to follow him after his little correction, we can guess that his motives are true. He really does want to follow Christ. But, but before he obeys that call, he wants to fulfill his obligation to his father and his mother, as God's law would command him, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments, the fourth one, by providing a proper, a proper burial for his father. So does Jesus have something against funerals you know, or, or family obligations? Uh, no, not necessarily, unless they become a barrier to our allegiance or an excuse for delaying our obedience. Uh, it's hard to tell exactly what this disciple is actually requesting. Uh, it could be that his father's just died and he wants to go finish up the funeral arrangements. But far more likely, he feels an obligation to stick around and help the family until his father dies. After which point, he would be free to then go and follow Jesus. Uh, and it's even possible that that obligation is motivated by a desire to collect the inheritance. Uh, if he's not around... When dad dies, he might not get his share. I mean, we don't know exactly what it was. Uh, he, he genuinely wants to follow Jesus, but just not yet. Not yet. He, he wants to delay. And again, we can't see everything that Jesus sees here. 
God looks, you know, man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord looks on the heart. But Jesus, knowing all men, sees in this man's request an attachment to this world that fails to appreciate the priority and the urgency of following Jesus. He underestimates the priority and the urgency of following Jesus. Now, I just want to clarify, God places a high value on family in Scripture. Uh, Later, just a few chapters after this, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees in Matthew 15 for neglecting the care of their parents for the sake of their man-made laws. Um, Or else, uh, similarly, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.8, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, So Jesus is not being careless here about family. And yet, he recognizes that family can also become an idol and a barrier to following Christ, especially when we find our identity more in our earthly family than in God's heavenly family, the family of God in Christ that transcends blood relation and time and space. And especially when pleasing our family takes priority over pleasing God and advancing his kingdom. And that's what seems to be at stake here based on Jesus' response. You know, when he says, let the dead bury their own dead, he's, he's using a bit of hyperbole there. He's, he's using a shocking statement to make a point. You know, following Jesus is so urgent and so all-consuming that when you leave to follow him, it's as if everything behind you is dead. And so therefore, let the dead bury their own dead if you're committed to following me. It's the same thing he says a little bit more clearly in chapter 10, verses 37 to 39. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So again, here we have someone who's overestimated what the world can give him. Significance, security, support. And who has underestimated the priority and urgency of Jesus' mission. The first example warns us not to be too quick to make big promises to God. This example warns us not to be too slow to obey. Not to be too slow to obey. Not to bury our allegiance under excuses and attachments to the world. Because Jesus and his kingdom are greater than anything this world can offer. Discipleship, which is the subject here. Following Jesus. Being, you know, serving him as king and savior. Serving his mission. Discipleship is serious business. As a... Scholar Grant Osborne writes, Discipleship is not a casual thing, like joining a club or a sports team. It cannot be an occasional activity, one of many to which we give a bit of allegiance. To follow Jesus is costly, demanding the surrender of other allegiances and the absolute priority of Jesus in our lives. And Jesus makes clear to the two who would follow him that the kingdom has now come, and so to be citizens of that kingdom means to renounce other citizenships, to become 
foreigners and strangers to this world. So why does Jesus want those kinds of genuine followers? Uh, What's the problem with a little extra publicity? You know, a bit of a fan club along the side. Name only Christians. Well, first, because Jesus' goal is not numbers for numbers' sake. The goal is changed lives to the glory of God. If a business tries to make itself look good by reporting its sales revenue while hiding the fact that over half of those products were later returned, they're simply deceiving themselves, trying to make themselves look good. In the same way, padding the church's numbers with name-only Christians completely misses the point. Not that Jesus is selling anything here, Rather, he's bought everything with his own blood, and so therefore we deserve, he demands and deserves our allegiance. But he wants true lives that are changed by his gospel, not a bunch of fans who are in it for themselves. The second reason that Jesus wants genuine followers is because fans or or name-only Christians send the wrong message both to the church and to the world. You know, uh, Kyle Eidelman in his book aptly titled, Not a Fan, uh, writes, The biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. And this is such a deadly threat because it not only obscures the true goal of our mission, that that. You know, our lives and the lives of others would be changed by the grace of God through what Christ has done on the cross and through his resurrection, that, that we would become more and more like him and that we would live under his reign and rule for the sake of his glory and for the good of this world. That's the mission. So, so not only does name-only fans obscure the mission, it reinforces the false idea that all this is really about me and what I get out of it. And so when the world looks at the church, instead of seeing Jesus, it sees a bunch of hypocrites. You know, people who say one thing but then do something completely different. In fact, that's often, sadly, what we see even when we look among ourselves. And those... Yeah, that's, and, and that's not what Jesus is calling us to. And so all of that raises an important question for us. Um, an uncomfortable but an extremely important question to consider. Am I following Jesus, or is my relationship with him more like a casual fan? Uh, In what ways do I overestimate what this world can give me and underestimate what Christ calls me to? Uh, Perhaps another way of asking that question is, what in this world am I holding on to or that is holding me back from an unreserved, radical obedience and following of Jesus Christ. Again, Kyle Eidelman offers a piercing illustration. He writes, I was reading about a strange baptism practice that was allowed by the church when the Knights of Templar would be baptized. When the church would baptize one of the knights, they would be baptized with their sword. But they wouldn't take the sword under the water with them. Instead, they would hold their swords up out of the water while the rest of them would be immersed. It was the knight's way of saying to Jesus, you can have control of me, but you can't have this. 
Jesus, I'm all yours, but who I am and what I do on the battlefield, how I use this sword, that's not part of the deal. And if it was still the practice today, we might not hold up a sword, but my guess is many of us would hold up a wallet. Some would hold up a remote control. Others would hold up a laptop. Many fans say to Jesus, I will follow anything and everything I have I give to you. But Jesus points to what you're hiding behind your back and says, what about that? What about your money? What about your food, your entertainment, your dream house, your daily planner? What about your fill in the blank? How would you fill in the blank with that? Just think about it for a minute. How would you fill in the blank? Jesus, you can have everything except blank. What is it in your heart that finds itself in that blank? My kids? My reputation? My career? And one of the ways you can answer that question uh, is, is this. What's the one thing that, should it be taken away from you, you would cease to have reason to go on living? What's the one thing in your life that if I were to lose that, I would have no reason to go on living? That's your idol. That's the thing you're treating more like God than God himself. Jesus says, but whoever wants to save his life will lose it. For whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? For me, personally, it's often one of three things. My ministry, my entertainment, and my kids. Uh, I look for my identity in my ministry and in my children. Uh, So my significance and, and value, that's by my default. This is confession time. This is not example time. Um... By my default, that's where I go for my significance. What others think of me when I preach or when I serve in ministry and the safety and well-being of my kids and what others think of me because of them as well. Uh, And I look to entertainment for escape. So when I'm tired and worn out from trying to please people and put on a show for them, that's where I want to go and check out for a little bit, watch a TV show or maybe three or something like that or obsess over my Twitter feed or something. So if following Jesus means that God were at some point to take any of those three things away from me, to be honest, I would be pretty undone. I would be pretty undone. Not so much the entertainment thing, but the other two, that would really mess up my view of who I am, just to be honest. And again, those aren't bad things. Kids aren't bad things. Ministry is not a bad thing. But neither is it God. And if we treat it like God... That gets in the way of us following Jesus with all we are and all we have to give. You know, another question for us to ask when we think about this, you know, why is it so hard for us to find time to minister the gospel to others? You know, if, if as a congregation God's given us a vision to, to be a, a gospel-centered community, a community where everything uh, flows out of and points back to the good news of Jesus Christ, and and to be a community where that shapes our lives as we live each day on mission, why is it then so hard to find time to have my neighbors over for dinner or or to sit down and open the word with a friend and encourage each other or to work together to to minister to someone else? Why, Why is that so hard to find that time? 
You know, it's because we're busy, right? We all have busy lives, you know. And in fact, somebody, our, our culture values busyness. It's like one of the chief virtues that we have here. Somebody asks you, how are you? 90% of the time, I'm busy. Crazy busy. Real busy. Been a, been a crazy week. And that's like a good thing. It's like, wow, this guy's busy. You know? <laughs> but how much of our busyness comes from overestimating what the world can give us? You know, if my kids aren't in every activity, they're not going to be well-rounded, they're not going to be well-adjusted, they're going to end up in counseling, my friends are going to think I'm a delinquent parent, and so on. You know, we, we overestimate what the world can give us. How much of our busyness is really a symptom of overattachment to this world, overestimating what it can give us, and underestimating the value, the cost, and the urgency of following Christ? Are we willing to make great sacrifices for Jesus in his kingdom? Are we willing to make sacrifices as a, as a congregation to be faithful to the vision God has given us? To share life together in the gospel and to make the most of what we're doing wherever we are for the sake of that gospel's advance. Let us not be too quick to make big promises about following Jesus without counting the cost, but let us not be too slow to obey. Let us not be too slow to obey, to to overestimate the world and underestimate Jesus. The third example of how not to follow Christ comes in verses 23 to 27, which warns us not to be too scared to trust Jesus as we step out. So look with me starting in verse 23. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. Then the men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Well, Jesus, in, in attempting to move away from the crowd and, and cross to the other side of the lake, finally makes it to the boat, and his close disciples, those whom he personally called and who have been following him all along, get in there with him, and, and they're sailing across the lake while the boat gets caught up in a terrible storm. So picture an episode of Deadliest Catch or something like that when, you know, the waves are crashing over top, only it's worse than that and, and so on. The boat is literally being swamped and at risk of sinking. And so the disciples do pretty much what anybody would do in that situation. They freak out. They panic in fear of, of dying and drowning. They rush to Jesus, to whom our surprise is sleeping through the storm. Uh, you know, what a contrast. You know, the storm, this storm that's about to kill them is a yawn to Jesus when it comes to his power and authority. But the disciples, in their fear, they, they wake him up. They're begging for him to save them from being killed, at which point Jesus does two things. First, he rebukes his disciples for their lack of faith. And then, second, he rebukes the storm and calms it. If the first two examples of following Jesus 
went off course by overestimating what the world can give us. Here the problem is overestimating what this world can take away. What this world can take away, which means underestimating the power and authority of Jesus, even over the wind and the waves. The disciples respond in fear of losing their lives at the hands of the sea, instead of faith in Jesus, the creator of the sea, who's with them, and who has power and authority to accomplish his purposes, even when it seems like everything's falling apart. Now, I don't want to allegorize this story um, as though it's just a metaphor for life and ministry. This was a real storm that Jesus really calmed, and it was really scary. But I do think that there is an analogy in this passage. Uh, Following Jesus, laying down our lives to know him and to make him known means we will face suffering in this life. Things are going to go out of control every now and then. Uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so it's easy in light of that reality to to respond in fear uh, when the wheels fall off, when this world, you know, fear toward what this world can do as it rails against God and his people. We fear losing our reputation. What's this going to cost me? We fear losing our family, losing our jobs or our friends or our comfort or some parts of the world, even our lives. And yet to live in such fear is to give the world and the enemy far too much credit. The enemy is real, and this world really is broken. But Jesus is greater than this world and greater than the one who is in this world, the enemy Satan. He has authority and power over whatever this world might throw at us, which means that nothing can happen apart from his unseen plan or purposes. Nothing is beyond the scope of his care and protection, even the hard things. And so rather than fearing the world and what it can do to us as we follow Jesus, we follow Jesus with trust. With trust. That's actually the safest place to be, is following him. Now that doesn't mean we're going to avoid suffering. But it does mean that we will never be alone in it. And that it's nothing that Jesus himself did not experience in his own life and death or hasn't already borne in our place such that we need not be afraid. So don't be too scared to trust Jesus. That's the point here. And if you want to know why, you know, why follow Christ? Why? I mean, this is asking a lot. This is asking everything. Why would I do this? Why would I follow Christ in this way? Why is he worth leaving everything else for? If you want to know why, this passage points us not to what we get out of it, but to who Jesus is. That's the motivation here. In fact, that's the very question that the disciples raise after they see Jesus calm the storm. What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. And there are two answers to that question in our passage. First, look again at at chapter 8, verse 20. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The title, Son of Man, is 
Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself in the Gospels. This is the first time he's used it in the Gospel of Matthew. He's going to use it another 29 times and, and, a, and around 81 times in the Gospels themselves. And that title, Son of Man, can actually mean several things. Um, at its most basic meaning, it simply means human. Uh, Jesus is a, is a son of man, a son of Adam. He's human. And that's the way the title's used throughout the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, or in passages like Numbers 23.19 or Psalm 8.4. But the same title's also used in Daniel chapter 7, with a bit more of a specific meaning. This is not just any human, but a special person who will come forth at the end of time as a representative of all God's people, having suffered at the hands of the enemy, yet triumphed over them, and therefore receiving authority and glory as king right alongside God himself. Now look at, and you don't have to turn there, we'll have it up on the screen behind me, but Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And that passage Jesus alludes to several times in the Gospels to speak of himself as the Son of Man. So, So what sort of man is this? He is the king of heaven and earth who gave his life on the cross to defeat the powers of evil. More than that, who died on the cross to accomplish God's plan of rescuing a people from their sin and the death that they deserve by taking God's holy anger against our sin on himself. The king who calls us then to follow him our resurrected king. He didn't stay dead, but who calls us to follow him. But it's not our own strength that we're able to do that in. It's his cross, his grace, his spirit that makes following him possible. And we can never forget that. I mean, as strong and as urgent as Jesus' command is for us to follow him, he never asks us for anything that he himself hasn't accomplished for us through his life, death, and resurrection, or that he doesn't himself supply for us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who gives the strength to obey his command. What sort of man is this? He's the king who accomplishes God's plan of salvation and therefore to whom all glory is due. That's the first reason we follow him. The second answer to this question, what sort of man is this, um, comes in the story of the calming of the storm. In fact, the, the fact that the disciples marveled and became more afraid of Jesus than they had been of the storm, as Mark 4 puts it in its uh, telling of this story, the fact that they're now more afraid of Jesus than they were of that storm suggests that they already know the answer to their own question. Because there's only one person in the Old Testament who has the authority and power to rebuke the wind and the waves, to control the sea, which is often associated with evil and chaos, and that is God himself. So to watch Jesus rebuke the wind and the waves before them, there's only one answer to that. 
That means they're standing in the presence of their very creator. That is pretty terrifying. But pretty comforting as well. Psalm 104 verse 7 says of the Lord, But at your rebuke the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. Who is this king? What sort of man is he? And why is he worth following and losing everything else for? Because he's God with us. He's God in the flesh. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's Jesus. God with us, the true king of heaven and earth. And that's why he bids us come and follow him. Because of who he is. He's worthy. He really is king. And so let us not overestimate what this world can give us. You know, and, and therefore underestimate the value, the cost, and the urgency of following Jesus. And let us not overestimate what this world can take away from us either. And so underestimate Jesus' power and authority as the true king of heaven and earth, and as God with us. Because of who he is, Jesus is worthy of our highest allegiance and our absolute trust, whatever the danger or the cost. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word which is at the same time comforting and convicting. Lord, thank you that when we are burdened and weary and weighed down, uh, whether it's from uh, the strain of this world warring against us or whether it's from our own uh, attempt to keep up the show and and to, to please you out of our own works, that you speak a word of comfort to call us to rest in what you have done for us. As we'll read later in this gospel, to take up your yoke, which is light, your burden, which is easy, because you are the one who's borne it in our place and who gives us the strength to do it. And yet, thank you that your word also convicts us when we see that we are holding on to parts of this world. We are overestimating what they can give us. We are overestimating what this world can take away from us, and so we're underestimating you. God, forgive us. Forgive us for that. Move in our hearts toward repentance. Show us what it is we're holding on to, and take it out of our hands if need be. Don't let this world come between us and you. Let us lay down our lives to make much of your kingdom, to follow you at all costs, because you're worthy of that, and because... This world needs to know you. And so often our comfort or our plans or our own agendas keep us from bearing witness to the world who does not know you. And so God, would you move in our hearts, strip away from our hearts what comes between us to to help us not have clenched hands but open hands before you. And would you use us, Lord? Would you help us not to find our identity and our delight and our security in the things of this world, but to find all satisfaction, security, and joy in you? Because there's nothing 
that can take you away from us. Nothing. You have bought us with a price. We belong to you. May you receive the glory to your name. And Lord, I pray for this congregation as we think about what it's going to look like to to live this out. Um, God, would you help us cherish the gospel in our community together, in our relationships, in our fellowship? Would you help us cherish the gospel as we take it to our neighbors, our colleagues, our family, our friends? Not because we're so great, but because we're weak and we're sinful and we have a great Savior. Lord, may that be our heart and our message. Lord, I thank you so much for this last week of VBS and all of the labor that went into it. And I pray that that the students who participated would continue to have that message ringing in their ears, that you are king and that through Jesus they can walk with you and stand strong for you because of what you've done despite our weakness, despite our rebellion. God, I pray for our student ministries. I pray for our search, uh, that you would guide us to the right person uh, for this fall. I pray for the upcoming trip uh, the students are taking to New York City. Would you finish those plans? Would you prepare hearts to serve you and to meet you as they labor together? God, I pray for the needs among us. Lord, you know what they are. Uh, You know those among us who are struggling financially, who are looking for work, who are living with chronic pain, whose relationships are broken. Uh, Lord, you know, uh, you know what, our, what our needs and, and the burdens of our hearts are, and so I pray that you would bear them and that you would heal them, that you would bring wholeness to those things. I pray, God, for those among us who, who are counting the cost right now and are not impressed with what they see in your kingdom. God, would you open eyes to see the true glory and beauty of who you are. And Lord, we pray for those battling cancer among us, uh, for Mary and for Steve Gerber, for Rick Brown, for Bob French, God. Lord, we, we praise you that you do hear prayer, and we pray that you continue to bring healing and comfort and joy amid the suffering. And Lord, we thank you for our missionaries. We thank you, Lord, for Leslie Bridge and her work with crew. And we thank you, Lord, for Kelsey and the work she's about to begin with crew. Lord, would you use that ministry, would you use these two ladies, again, to magnify your name, to be a demonstration of the gospel in terms of your grace, your love, the seriousness of sin, and yet the sweet sufficiency of your grace. And Lord, may that be true of all of us as we live out our days and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.